1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 to 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, today's topic is one that we don't often talk about in church. Uh, not because we don't need to, it's just easier not to. Uh, and I guess that's one of the biggest benefits of studying a whole book of the Bible. Um, we don't get to pick and choose what it is we're going to study for the day. If it was up to me, I probably wouldn't have chosen this topic for today because it's a tough one. And I know some of it, I'm actually a little bit embarrassed to talk about it. And I know that some people will probably take offence at what I have to say. But the Lord has put it in his word. And so it's the topic for today. And also it sort of carries on into next week as well. So this is sort of part one of two parts. We're going to read the rest of chapter seven next week. Now, when it comes to marriage and sex, there's two very different ways that people get it wrong. Uh, last week, we heard about sexual immorality, uh, where people engage in sex with someone they're not married to. And to sum it up, flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Don't do it. It's bad for us, uh, and it's not at all compatible with our calling as disciples of Jesus. So that was last week. This week, we see the opposite extreme. Uh, the other way that some people can get it wrong, not many, but some, 
is to deny that marriage and even physical and sexual intimacy within marriage is a gift of God and that it's something that husbands and wives should cherish and cultivate. Now, here's a big word for you, asceticism. Does anyone know that word, asceticism, or ever heard of somebody who is known as an ascetic? I know, I'm getting lots of shakes of the head. Okay. Um, now, it's, I'm not talking about anaesthetic, it's all right, so I'm not trying to put everyone to sleep here. Uh, asceticism, well, it's not so common in our culture today, but in the past, at, at times, it has been common um, in all sorts of different religions. Asceticism is a severe form of self-denial, all right? It's where, so somebody, it's where somebody gives up stuff that is pleasurable to them in the hope that somehow... By giving up these pleasures that they have, that they will bring themselves closer to God. All right? So an ascetic may wear rough old sackcloth um, just so that he hasn't got nice linen clothes rubbing on his skin or whatever. Or they might only eat dry bread and water. Or they might have a policy of no sex, no television, no alcohol, no music, no dancing, no car. There's all sorts of ways that asceticism expresses itself. They believe that if they give up all of these things, then they will be much more spiritual and their prayer life will be much more powerful. Okay, so that's what an ascetic believes. And it seems that the church in Corinth had the two extremes right there in that one church. They had those who pursued every possible pleasure, even sexual immorality, and that's what we covered last week. And it also seems that there were those who were teaching asceticism, uh, that they should give up every pleasure and deny themselves the happiness that this life has to offer in the hope that by giving up happiness here and now, it's going to make me more spiritual. We're into a new section of the letter today, where Paul begins to answer a whole bunch of questions that someone in that church has written to him to ask about, and they're very relevant topics for us today. Who'd have thought that the questions that they were asking a couple of thousand years ago are still the questions that we want answered today? And it's all about how we should conduct ourselves as disciples of Jesus, especially in the areas of marriage and sexuality. Um, and it seems that there must have been some ascetics there in that church because first up, Paul finds that he needs to actually assure them that, hey, it is, it is actually a good thing for a married couple to share physical intimacy with each other. Uh, verse 17 uh, which we're not actually studying today. Um, it's going to come next week. But it summarises what the whole of the message of chapter 7 is about. All right? So this is a summary. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. All right? So the main message for today is for us to lead the life that the Lord has called us to. It is for you to lead the life that the Lord has called you to and which the Lord has assigned for you, right? It's not up to me to worry about what the other person is doing. It's between me and God. Now, let's unpack this. 
What Paul is saying and what this whole section is about is God calls some to singleness and for these people, singleness is a gift. It's a calling of God and God calls others to marriage. And for them, marriage is a gift. Marriage is a calling of God. And if the Lord has called you to singleness, well, he's called you to chastity. That means to refrain from sex. But if the Lord has called you to marriage, well, that's an entirely different calling. There is nothing dirty about physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. In fact, if the husband withholds physical intimacy from his wife, or if a wife withholds physical intimacy from her husband, well, that's not done to honour God, that's actually selfishness. And it's something which puts a strain on the marriage, that a sort of strain that a marriage shouldn't have. And I know this is no excuse, but Paul is very practical in this whole, what he has to say here, uh, when he says that if a husband or a wife denies their spouse the physical intimacy that should regularly be expressed within a marriage, well, that increases temptation. It increases temptation for the one who's being denied to start looking for it elsewhere and be tempted in ways that he wouldn't or she wouldn't normally be tempted. You see, husbands and wives need each other. We might need each other in different ways, but we need each other. And it's a husband's duty to be the husband that the wife is needing him to be. And it is the wife's duty to be the wife that the husband is needing her to be. The husband belongs to the wife and the wife belongs to the husband. You see, marriage isn't about me having my needs met. It's about me meeting the needs of my wife and vice versa. We give ourselves for the good and for the sake of the other. And so Paul says, um, I don't know if you ever realised just how practical some of this stuff is that's in the Bible. He says, don't deprive one another. In fact, he says the only reason that you should ever deprive one another um, is if you find that physical intimacy is taking up too much of your time and, it's, and you just don't have enough time to pray, then maybe... You might just put it on hold for a little while and, and that's two of, if you two of you agree, and then you can go and spend a bit more time in prayer and whatnot, but make sure that it's only for a little while and that you don't leave it on hold, that you go back to it again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, is the lack of self-control the only reason that husbands and wives should nurture physical intimacy within their marriage? Of course not. Physical intimacy between a husband and a wife is very much a part of what it means to be married. Um, it's an expression of the love that we have for each other as we put the other one first. And maybe husbands and wives need to be reminded of these verses more often uh, and some of you go amen to that brother uh, and others will go oh no not too often righto let's move on paul now addresses three groups of people he addresses the unmarried and the widows uh, which includes all unmarried people widowed divorced uh, and those who have never been married then he addresses uh, married Christian couples, where husband and wife are both Christians. And then he addresses Christians who are married to an unbeliever. 
And so given Paul's instruction a little bit later on in this letter that that a Christian should not marry an unbeliever, uh, presumably he's talking to, to married couples where they were married, um, but then one of them became a Christian and the other didn't. Now, in all of this instruction, I want to preface it by saying two things. Firstly, when we read the Bible, we have to understand that we're not reading a legal document. You do know that, don't you? The Bible is not a legal document. It's a bit different to a contract that you might sign when you're buying a house or a block of land or something. Um, The purpose of a legal document is to very clearly and unambiguously communicate the terms and conditions of the agreement and, and to define boundaries that cannot be crossed. In a legal document, there's no room for grace or mercy. Uh, in a legal document, there's no room for exaggeration or hyperbole. There's another big word. Do you know what hyperbole is? So those who, are, have you, who have a strong grasp of the English language might know. Hyperbole is where somebody makes an over-the-top, outrageous statement, but it's said to make a point. So, for example, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better for you to, to go into heaven missing an eye than to go into hell with both eyes. All right? so, um, so what was the point that Jesus was making? Does Jesus really want us to pluck out our eye? I don't think so, and I don't think you think so either, because looking around, unless they've got really good glass replicas now, it looks like you've all still got both your eyes. Um, So what's the point? Um, The point that Jesus was making is sin is an extremely serious matter. Don't continue in sin. It's really important that we make every effort to deal with sin, um, and we might even have to give, give up some things in this life, so there's stuff we, that we might have to cut off, cut off that we really don't want to cut off, but we know that we have to cut those things off so that we can be right with God because these things cause us to sin. Now, that's an example of hyperbole. Another example of hyperbole, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This is hyperbole, and you could never use language like that in a legal document. It would just be a nonsense. And so a legal document wouldn't ever use such language and it'll usually begin with all of the definitions of all of the words that are going to be used in the document so that it's all very clearly defined so that there's no argument about what it means. I am so glad, though, that the Bible isn't a legal document. Is anybody else glad about that? Imagine imagine if it was. For God so loved the world that in accordance with section 9, subclause 6.32, paragraph A, He gave his only begotten son, so that pursuant to section 18, subclause 4.21, paragraph F, whoever believes in him shall not perish in accordance with section 12, but have everlasting life, unless otherwise stipulated in the terms and conditions of this agreement. So you're pretty happy that the Bible isn't a legal document? And the second thing I want to share is Paul's purpose for giving this advice. When we get to 35, verse 35, um, which won't, once again, be until next week, he tells us his purpose for a lot of this stuff that he's told us. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order 
and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. All right, so what we've just read and what we're going to continue to read again next week, some of it might be tough, but it's for our own good. And he doesn't say this to lay upon us any unnecessary restraint and to bind us up and to tie us up into legalities. Its purpose is to promote good order, um, all right, so, so we'll know what is the proper thing to do and it's to secure our undivided devotion to the Lord. Righto. So to the first group, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, by the way, in the original Greek, it actually doesn't have the words with passion there. It, it simply says, for it is better to marry than to burn. And so it sort of leaves it up in the air a bit there. Does that mean it's, it's better to get married than to burn in hell because you're, because you're tempted by sexual immorality? Or is it, as our Bible's translated, it's better to get married than to have this burning of passion inside of you? I don't know. I don't know. So if you're unmarried, it's good to remain single. But if you find that you have an uncontrollable longing for physical intimacy, that sort of intimacy that should only be expressed in a marriage, well, maybe your gift isn't singleness. Um, and maybe your gift is actually marriage and you should get married. And that's not a problem. And we're going to talk about this some more next week. Uh, next week it gets more into talking about whether it's right to stay married, unmarried or to get married. The second group is married Christian couples where husbands and wives are both Christians. He says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. All right, so that's Paul's way of saying this is something that Jesus has taught. I'm not making this stuff up. This is something that Jesus has taught. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. God's plan for marriage is for it to be a lifelong union between a man and a woman. Now, I think I might have told you this story before, but I'll tell you again because it's a good one. Uh, years ago, I badly smashed my ankle. Um, and it's the bone inside there which doesn't heal very well. And at the time, they did an operation on it and they went and they screwed the three biggest pieces back together and cleaned out the rest of it and threw it away. And, and I come out of that and they said, look, the chances are this isn't going to work and you'll have to get your ankle fused. Anyway, we persisted with it for about a year, but eventually that bone was collapsing and, all right, we had to get the ankle fused. And so when I was talking about the doctor about it, what, they, what he said to me was, this is likely to be the biggest decision that you'll ever make in your life. He said, it's bigger than buying a house, it's bigger than choosing a career, uh, it's bigger than getting married, he said, there's no going back. Once it's done, it's done, and it cannot be undone. And what they did is they took two of the bones, 
They pulled out the bit of bone that was broken and then they cut off another piece of another bone and they just mashed it up and put it all together and screwed it all together and put it in plaster for a few weeks. And, and so those bones actually grew into one solid lump of bone. So I actually can't bend my ankle. That's as much movement as I've got in my ankle. Um, and for that ankle, for those bones to ever be separated again, it, it, my ankle would have to be smashed apart. Now, that doctor's view of marriage was a bit shallow. Um, it was sort of basically, you know, if you're not compatible, you can always get a divorce and start over again. But marriage should not be undone. To undo marriage is just as traumatic as if my ankle bones were smashed apart again. And we have to take this very seriously. As Paul says, this isn't something that he's made up. This is something that Jesus taught. In Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 19, in Mark chapter 10, in Luke chapter 16, every time Jesus makes it very clear that marriage should not be undone. If a married couple find themselves in conflict, divorce should never be seen as the solution. The aim is for the husband and the wife to be reconciled to each other. Now, reconciliation, that's not about making ourselves live with each other in a state of unhappiness. Reconciliation is repentance, forgiveness, healing, restoration. And as Christians, we should be making this a key part of our marriages. Repentance, forgiveness, healing, restoration. And as a church, we should be helping husbands and wives to be reconciled to each other. But we live in a broken world. What if, over time, it becomes clear that one of the parties will not repent and they cannot be reconciled? And now we're getting into the subject that many Christians disagree on, the whole topic of divorce and remarriage. It's a, it's a heavy topic today, isn't it? Let's go to the teaching of Jesus. Paul said, this isn't my teaching, this is something that Jesus taught. So let's have a look. What did Jesus say? Well, I reckon the starting point for us, um, we have to start with, well, what was the culture that Jesus was in? And I think the starting point for us has to be that divorce is possible. A marriage can be dissolved, but it shouldn't be. And this is a very important point. Because if, as some people believe, our starting point is that it is impossible to ever dissolve a marriage, right? So their view would be, once you're married to a person, you're married to that person forever, and even if you do get a legal divorce, you're still married to that person in God's eyes. Now, if that was our starting point, there could never be a case for remarriage after divorce, ever. Uh, if it is impossible to dissolve a marriage, then a remarried person would be committing adultery every time they had physical union with their new husband or their new wife. 
But as I study the Bible, I find that the biblical evidence is overwhelmingly clear that a marriage can be dissolved. It is possible. It just shouldn't be. Uh, unless the circumstances meet one of the biblical exceptions. And I guess a good starting point is to begin with the word and the concept of divorce itself. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, in Old Testament culture, in the Jewish New Testament culture, in the Gentile culture, in our culture today, in basically every culture that has ever been, divorce, the whole purpose of divorce was and is to allow a divorced person to remarry. That's what the word divorce means. That's what it has always meant. But what biblical evidence do we have? Well, how about the verse that we just read? It said there in verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband. Right? So it's clearly talking about divorce. But then it says, but if she does, right? so if she does divorce her husband, she should remain unmarried. Right? So what is her marital state? If she divorces, her marital state is unmarried. Jesus himself, when he met the woman at the well, said to her, you've had five husbands and now you're living with someone who you're not married to. In fact, you don't have a husband. Um, if it was impossible to dissolve a marriage, he would have said to her, you have a husband, but you've lived with five men since then. And then in the Old Testament, it talks about remarriage following divorce and gives um, circumstances about what should or shouldn't happen there. And so the biblical evidence is overwhelming that it is possible to dissolve a marriage, but we shouldn't. But there are exceptions. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, that, that all seems very hard and fast, doesn't it? And Luke says something very similar, and it's pretty obvious that this is what Paul is referring to when, when he said what he said in chapter 7 there. Five times in the New Testament, we're given specific teaching on divorce, just five times. Four of these say that we should never get divorced. Um, this is the principle. The principle is marriage is so important, it shouldn't be broken. This is the principle. But three of them also give an exception to the principle. Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 19 both give an exception in cases involving sexual immorality. And shortly after, we're going to find an exception here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So what's going on? Why do Mark and Luke both indicate that divorce should never happen and then Matthew twice states that in cases of sexual immorality, a husband or a wife can get a divorce? Did Matthew get it wrong? Did Mark and Luke get it wrong? Not at all. Jesus at one time stated the general principle and at another time 
he includes exceptions to the principle, which is exactly what Paul does in today's reading. He states the principle, and then a few verses on, he gives an exception to the principle. So, what should we take home from this? I'll tell you what I should take home. I should view my marriage as unbreakable. And if you're married, you should view your marriage as unbreakable. This is the principle. God's plan for marriage is that husband and wife would model to each other the reconciliation that Christ has with his church. But we should also recognise that in God's grace, when a husband or a wife have had the heartache of a broken marriage, in God's grace and in his mercy, he allows divorce. Because sometimes that's the most merciful option. Sometimes a marriage is so broken already such as in the case of adultery or maybe with other forms of, of abuse. And the purpose of divorce is actually a thing of mercy to allow that person to marry again. In, in the Jewish divorce certificate, um, which was around in Jesus' day, uh, it, it says what divorce is about. Behold, you are free to marry any man. And next week, we're going to get to verse 27. And verse 27 says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. And then our English translations say, Are you free from a wife? But in the Greek, it actually says, Have you been loosed from your wife? Have you been untied from a wife? Well, don't seek a wife. But if you do, sorry, if you do marry, you have not sinned. Okay, so the first exception for divorce is in the case of sexual immorality. The second exception is in the case of desertion. And this is what we come to now. The third group who Paul addresses are those in the church who were already married when they became a Christian, but their husband or their wife didn't share their newfound faith. And so one of them puts their faith in Christ, but the other one rejects him. And to these people, Paul says, if your spouse is willing to live with you, that's fine. Don't divorce them. And you don't have to worry about this one flesh relationship. You don't have to worry about that that's unclean because your holiness rubs rubs off on them. It's not the other way around. Now, that doesn't mean that an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife is saved because their spouse is. It just means that the Christian spouse isn't tainted by the unsaved spouse, all right? So if God has made you holy, no one can take your holiness away from either you or your children. But he goes on to say, but if your unbelieving spouse is not willing to live with you, well, there's not much that anybody can do about that. Uh, Verse 15 says... But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 
For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to not be enslaved? The most obvious and natural meaning is you are not bound to that person anymore. You are free to get married again, but only to another Christian. So that's the second exception that the Bible gives. Now, having shared what I believe is the simplest and the clearest way of taking what the Bible teaches on divorce and remarriage, I do need to acknowledge that some Bible scholars believe that it is never okay to remarry following divorce. Uh, Some Bible teachers who I read and listen to, and at times I find them very helpful on this topic, they disagree with what I've just said. Uh, But these are in the minority. Uh, When it comes to evangelical Bible scholars, most today hold the position that I've just explained. Most leaders of the Reformation also hold this position, but not everybody does. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church, for instance, hold a very high view of marriage. Uh, For the Roman Catholic Church, marriage is a sacrament, and it's something which cannot be undone, uh, which is why a broken marriage has to be annulled prior to a remarriage being allowed. Now, we're getting out of the domain of what I understand. But why do people hold such different positions on whether divorce is ever permissible or even possible? It's because the Bible isn't a legal document. If it were a legal document, there would be no exceptions. Uh, There would only be law, boundary and penalty. Instead, God's word very clearly defines the principle of of what is right and best and and, and the principle is something that we should take very seriously and make every effort to abide by this principle. And yet, as with every other form of brokenness in God's grace and mercy, when our greatest intentions and our best efforts end in brokenness, in Christ there remains freedom. Does God consign everybody who's ever suffered a broken marriage to a life of loneliness and chastity? I don't believe so. And not because that's what I want to believe, but because that's what I believe the Bible teaches. Um, And you may disagree with that, and that's okay. But whatever conclusion you or I come to on this topic, it's very important that we do remember that within the Christian church, this is a debatable issue. And so none of us should judge those who hold a different position to what we do. And none of us should judge those who have suffered terrible trauma at the breakdown of a marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today for the gift of singleness. And we thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, we pray for all those here today who are married. We ask that you would strengthen our marriages. 
Lord, we pray for those marriages where physical intimacy has gone cold. Stoke the fires of passion, that husband and wife would give themselves to one another, that men would be the husbands that their wives need them to be, that women would be the wives that their husbands need them to be. And Lord, where there was hurt, anguish, bitterness within a marriage, we pray that you would bring repentance, forgiveness, healing and peace, that husband would be reconciled to wife and wife reconciled to husband. We also pray for those who are divorced. We ask that you would heal their spirit. And we pray for those who have married again. Lord, may they honour you in their marriage. Make them strong. And in their marriage, may they be a witness to your mercy, your grace and your restoring power. Lord, forgive us for when we have wrongly judged others. Forgive us for building barriers in our marriages or for building barriers in other people's marriages. And help us to be a people who honour you in marriage, in singleness, in whatever state you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen.